Hi, everybody. I gotta put my glasses. Oh, I don't need these glasses. Okay, I'm recording a little later tonight. I gotta see what time it is. Uh, Monday, June 1st at 9.24 p.m. Welcome to English Teacher Radio. I'm your English teacher, Mrs. Ford. I miss you very much. And uh, today I'm gonna be talking about Chapter 8, Part 1. Chapter 8, I think, is the shortest chapter in the book. And we're not going to get to the end. And the end is really where the the big the big thing happens, which we're not going to talk about today. Um, but we got we got to do something else first. And then if you I'm flipping ahead, if we look at chapter nine, which is going to be the resolution, where of course by definition in the last chapter or sort of um, scene of any movie, we have to tie up our loose ends. So in chapter eight, we're not quite there yet. So. If you remember at the end of chapter seven, Nick decides to go home. He, uh, Tom calls him a cab. And then Gatsby's waiting outside Daisy's window, which we all know is um, meaning, not meaningless. What's the word I'm looking for? Pointless because she's not coming down. So it, the chapter eight opens where Nick says, I couldn't sleep all night. A foghorn was groaning incessantly on the sound. And I tossed ha- half sick between grotesque reality and savage frightening dreams. Toward dawn, I heard a taxi go up Gatsby's drive, and immediately I jumped out of bed and began to dress. I felt that I had to tell him something, something to warn him about, and morning would be too late. So Nick can't sleep, so he he hears Gatsby come home, and he hops out of bed, and he goes over there. So um, Gatsby says, nothing happened. I waited, and at about 4 o'clock, she came to the window and stood there for a minute, and then turned out the light. In this moment, we, the reader, were like, yeah, yeah, we know. We knew that was going to happen. She's she's done with you. Tom won. But Gatsby, the the dreamer, remember, this is his big quality, is that he dreams. He is so fixated on the dream that it's extremely hard to process, if not impossible for him to process, that this is over. So then Nick goes on to say, His house had never seemed so enormous to me as it did that night when we hunted through the great rooms for cigarettes. We pushed aside curtains that were like pavilions and felt over innumerable feet of dark wall for electric light switches. Once I tumbled with a sort of splash upon the ghostly, the keys of ghostly piano. There was an inexplicable amount of dust everywhere. The rooms were musty as though they hadn't been aired for days. So you want to notice here, like, how is the house being characterized now that we're on our way down, if that makes sense. So chapter two, three, four, we're on our way up. And now obviously things have turned, though Gatsby doesn't notice. But the true Gatsby, the truth of Gatsby's house, even all of these are coming to the forefront. So then Nick suggests that Gatsby leave town, because if he doesn't, he's going to get caught. He drives this very obvious car that's clearly damaged and they're going to find him. So he encourages him to go away. And Nick then says he would not consider it. He couldn't possibly leave Daisy until he knew what she was going to do. He was clutching at some last hope and I couldn't bear to shake him free. And, um, and, and he, this is, well, I don't want to get too far ahead, but he really believes that he, she, Daisy is going to contact him to make a plan. Okay. Then we really switch gears and Nick says, It was this night he told me the strange story of his youth with Dan Cody. Told me because Jay Gatsby had broken up like glass against Tom's hard malice. 
and the long extra- secret extravaganza was played out. I think he would have acknowledged anything now without reserve because he wanted to talk about Daisy. Okay. I love this line. I'm going to read it again. He told it to me because Jay Gatsby had broken up like glass against Tom's hard malice. And that's really the truth. Like once they get back from their night in New York city, Gatsby just tells Nick everything because he has, the facade is fading, right? The reality is there. So he starts to tell Nick his true story. So I'm just going to read the backstory here. And remember, everything that you're going to read in this part of the novel is true. Like, this is the truth. It says, she was the first nice girl he had ever known. In various unrevealed capacities, he had come in contact with such women, but always with an indiscernible barbed wire between them. He found her excitingly desirable. Um, uh, It goes on to say that he went to Camp Taylor to see her and eventually... Um, he goes to see her, or at first he goes to see her with other men who are in town and know her. And then eventually he goes up by himself. And I want to read this one part because it really, I think, highlights what he's interested in their relationship. There was a right mystery about it, her home. A hint of bedrooms upstairs more beautiful and cool than other bedrooms. Of gay and radiant activities taking place through its corridors. And of romances that were not musty and laid away already in lavender, but fresh and breathing and redolent in this year's shining motor cars and of dances whose flowers were scarcely withered. Um, okay. So there's this theme here that he falls in love with Daisy, not just for her as the individual, but with all the things that she brings, right? The, the excitement of this young, beautiful girl that many other men desire. And also the excitement of this young, beautiful, wealthy girl. Okay. So it says he knew, but he knew that he was in Daisy's house by a colossal accident. However glorious might his future be as Jay Gatsby, he was at present a penniless young man without a past. And at any moment, the invisible cloak of his uniform might slip from his shoulders. So he made the most of his time. He took what he could get ravenously and unscrupulously. Eventually, he took Daisy one still October night, took her because he had no real right to touch her. The one part about this that I really like is when they call it the invisible cloak of his uniform. And the reason why we call the cloak, the uniform, the cloak is because you have to imagine that when you see a man in a uniform, when a man is enlisted in the military and he wears a uniform, you know absolutely nothing about that man's social class. But by wearing the uniform, he is a man of status. And for Jay Gatsby, that was a really big deal. It was really important for him because if he could wear a uniform, he could really be, he could mask his state of poverty that he came from. And he did mask his state of poverty. He never tells her where he's from. Um, He's obviously extremely good looking and he really uses that to his advantage. But the invisible cloak of the uniform is the thing that's hiding how poor he is. Um, okay. Then it says he let her believe that he was a person much from much the same strata as herself, that he was fully able to take care of her. As a matter of fact, he had no such faculties or sorry, facilities. He had no comfortable family standing behind him and he was liable at the women of an evident personal government to be blown anywhere about in the world, but he didn't despise himself and it didn't turn out as he had imagined. Okay. He had intended probably to take what he could and go, but now he found that he had committed himself 
to the following of a grail. He knew that Daisy was extraordinary, but he didn't realize just how extraordinary a nice girl could be. She vanished into, into her rich house, into her rich full life, leaving Gatsby nothing. He felt married to her. That was all. I think that's a key line right there when Nick says he felt married to her. Cause I think he did feel married to her. Um, and I don't just say that to confirm what Nick is saying, but we, if we were in class, we would often talk about this concept. Like, does he love her? And in the past, and probably already to yourself, you've said, I don't know if he loves her, but he is obsessed with her. And that is, seems to be a more accurate than, than loving. Right. Um, Okay. When they met again two days later, it was Gatsby who was breathless, who was somehow betrayed. Her porch was bright with the bought luxury of starshine. The wicker of the settee squeaked fashionably as she turned toward him, and he kissed her cautious and lovely mouth. Um, oh, I got to read this last part. She had caught a cold, and it made her voice huskier and more charming than ever. And Gatsby was overwhelmingly aware of the youth and mystery that wealth imprisons and preserves of the freshness of many clothes of end of Daisy gleaming like silver safe and proud above the hot struggles of the poor in this woman. And I love the fact where it says um, it was he who was breathless. He who was somehow betrayed. And it's interesting to us. Like when we think of this, like, I don't want to call it a stereotypical romance story, but when we think of it, it's often the woman who, you know, is overly eager and sort of um, thinks there's a commitment when there isn't. But in this case, it's Gatsby who is all of those things. He feels like he, I don't want to say he feels like she belongs to him, but he feels committed to her and he will come to expect a commitment from her as time moves on. And she, of course, is not just who she is, but she is sort of like this token or this um, artifact or something, this emblem, that's probably the best word of the world of the wealthy. And so she's like the missing piece to his Gatsby puzzle. And so in order for him to really execute this dream of who he wants to be, he has to have her. Okay. Um, okay. So <laughs> on the last, I'm laughing because um, this is like a, my son would call this a cringy scene on the last afternoon before he went abroad. So before he leaves for war, he sat with Daisy in his arms for a long, silent time. It was a cold fall day with a fire in the room and her cheeks flushed. Now and then she moved and he changed his arm a little and once he kissed her dark, shining hair. The afternoon had made them tranquil for a while as to give them a deep memory for the long parting the next day promised. They had never been closer in the month of love nor communicated more profoundly one, one with another than when she brushed silent lips against his coat shoulders or when he touched the end of her fingers gently as though she were asleep. Okay. Then he goes to war and he does really well in war. So all that stuff about, um, in, I think it was chapter four that he told us about his service was true. Okay. After the armistice, he tried frantically to get home, but some complication or misunderstanding sent him to Oxford instead. He was worried now. There was a quality of nervous despair in Daisy's letters. She didn't see why he couldn't come. She was feeling the pressure of the world outside, and she wanted to see him and feel his presence beside her and be reassured that she was doing the right thing after all. Okay, so let's pause for a second. That excerpt there is super important because we keep coming back to this theme of 
how Daisy culturally is not able to be her own woman. And again, this is like a a place, a thing that we would talk about a lot, right? Like, is this Daisy's personal lack of will or is this, is this the world that Daisy lives in? And I, you know, it's probably both, but she's such a good character because she really highlights, we're assuming the pressure that women felt at this time. She's young, she's wealthy, she's beautiful. Why aren't you married already? And then this next part also highlights it. I'm going to read this. For Daisy was young and her artificial world was redolent of orchids and pleasant, cheerful snobbery and orchestras, which set the rhythm of the year, summing up the sadness and suggestiveness of life in new tunes. Um, It says, through this twilight universe, Daisy began to move again with the season. Suddenly she was again keeping half a dozen dates with half a dozen men and drowsing asleep at dawn with the beds and chiffon of an evening dress tangled among the dying orchids on the floor beside her bed. All the time, something within her was crying for a decision. She wanted her life shaped now immediately, and the decision must be made by some force of love, of money, of unquestionable practicality that was close at hand. Okay, so again, notice how it's not Daisy who is making the decision. She's not saying, you know what? I love this guy. She's waiting for a force. And it sort of highlights her lack of autonomy over her own life. Real quick, I have to digress here. If you guys have been watching the behind the scenes videos, when they when they talk about shooting the scene at Nick's bungalow, when Gatsby comes over for the first time, if you saw the scene in the movie or if you watched the videos I posted, it's this amazing thing where Gatsby brings over flowers and he brings Daisy like, or someone references that, I think in the book, Fitzgerald calls it a greenhouse because he brings over so many flowers. Do you guys remember that room that's just like decked out? Those are orchids. Orchids are a really beautiful, delicate flower. You got to take really good care of the orchid, but they're really cool. Those are all orchids. In the video, the, I think it's like the costume woman or I don't know who it is, but she said they didn't know what flower to pick for that scene because they don't talk about specific flowers in the book. But right here on the top of page 159, they say that Daisy had an orchid, a dying orchid on the floor beside her bed. And so, so that teeny tiny piece of text they took and they were like, okay, in the movie, Gatsby's bringing orchids because that's we'll, we'll say that's her favorite flower. Okay. Um, hold on. All right. So then the next paragraph said that force took shape in the middle of the spring with the arrival of Tom Buchanan. So remember Daisy is awaiting some force and that force appears and she allows herself to be taken for lack of a better word by Tom. Excuse me. Okay. Hold on. There was a wholesome bulkiness about his person and his position and Daisy was flattered. Doubtless, there was a certain struggle and a certain relief. The letter reached Gatsby while he was still at Oxford. Okay, guys, if we were in class, I would say, like, what, everyone listening, what does the letter say? Um, and some of you would know it and some of you wouldn't because it's a little nuanced. But it's the breakup letter, right? It's her writing to him saying, it's over, I'm with another person. Or maybe it's just, it's over. Okay. Um, then, so that's the backstory and Nick hears all of that backstory that night after, after Myrtle dies and he hears it from Gatsby's, you know, very honest perspective. 
I'm going to read a little more and then we're going to be done for the day. And part two will be out on Wednesday. Okay. So it's Nick says it was dawn now on long Island. And we went about opening the rest of the windows downstairs, filling the house with gray turning gold turning light. The shadow of a tree fell abruptly across the dew and ghostly birds began to sing among the blue leaves. There was a slow, pleasant movement in the air, scarcely a wind promising a cool, lovely day. Guys, pause for a second. You know, I'm always jabbering on about the weather. You have to notice how the heat has broken. This is huge, people, because this book takes place in the summer, right? The raging summer of 1922. But when the season changes, that is, the, that is what we have to pay attention to. And when seasons change, this is something that filmmakers use. This is something that not people who write novels use, authors use. This is something that all storytellers use. Mary Poppins comes to mind, right? When the seasons change, things change. And that's true in real life also. So you got to note that there's a cool breeze coming. Okay. I don't think she ever loved him. Gatsby turned around from the window and looked at me challengingly. Okay. There he goes again. He cannot digest the truth, everyone. You must remember, old sport. She was very excited this afternoon. He told her things in that way that frightened her, that made it look as if I was some kind of cheap sharper. And the result was she hardly knew what she was saying. He sat down gloomily. Of course, she might have loved him just for a minute when they were first married and loved me even more then, do you see? Oh, Gatsby. Okay, a lot to unpack here. One is, um, notice how, like, he, he again, no, nobody takes Daisy at her word. Like, if she makes an assertion, nobody cares. It's not enough for them. Even Gatsby, who claims to love her. And then he, he gives in just the tiniest bit right here. Of course, she might have loved him just for a minute when they were first married. And loved me even more than do you see. This is, like, the beginning of the end. Um... Okay. Suddenly he came out of it with a curious remark. In any case, he said, it was just personal. What could you, and then Nick says, what could you make of that except to suspect some intensity in his conception of the affair that couldn't be measured? He came back from France when Tom and Daisy were still on their wedding trip and made a miserable but irresistible journey to Louisville. Because remember, that's where Gatsby met Daisy. And on the, on the last of his army pay, he stayed there a week walking the streets where their footsteps had clicked together through the no November night, revisiting the out-of-the-way places to which they had driven in her white car, just as Daisy's house had always seemed to him more mysterious and gay than other houses. So his idea of the city itself, even though she was gone from it, was pervaded with a melancholy beauty. He left, feeling that if he searched harder, he might have found her, that he was leaving her behind. The day coach, he was penniless now, was hot. He went out to the state, the open vestibule and sat down on a folding chair in the station and slid away, and the backs of unfamiliar buildings moved by. Then out into the field, Springfields, where a yellow trolley raced them for a minute with people in it who might have once seen the pale magic of her face along the casual street. Um, okay, so the, I'm going to read one more paragraph real quick. I just want you guys to notice like the sheer desperation of Gatsby in this point in the, in his personal story, the track curved now, and it was going away from the sun, which as it sank lower seemed to spread itself in benediction over the vanishing city where she had drawn her breath. He stretched out his hand desperately 
as if to snatch only a wisp of air to save a fragment of the spot that she had made lovely for him. But it was all going by too fast now for his blurred eyes, and he knew that he had lost that part of it, the freshest and the best forever. Okay, so remember, he doesn't see her again until she comes over to Nick's that one day. And if you remember, like, there's this excerpt that I asked about in one of your homework assignments where I said, like, oh, there's a quote from Gat- from Nick, and he describes Gatsby um, as, like, maybe looking at Daisy and wondering if she falls short of what he had imagined her to be or his dream. And um, Nick comments that there's no there's sort of, I can't remember the exact quote, but it's something like, there's no telling what a man will store up in his ghostly heart. And that's like when, when Gatsby leaves Louisville, this huge dream of his, right? This longing for Daisy, not Daisy, the human, but Daisy, the memory, it like takes on a life of its own. Okay. So we're going to stop there for the night. So chapter eight is full of backstory. Um, and then when we come back to the morning, I'm just going to read this first sentence, actually. It was nine o'clock in the morning when we finished breakfast and went out to the porch. The night had made a sharp difference in the weather, and there was an autumn flavor in the air. What did I tell you? Pay attention to the weather. The gardener, the last one of Gatsby's former servants, came to the foot of the steps. I'm going to drain the pool today, Mr. Gatsby. Leaves will start falling pretty soon, and there's always trouble with the pipes. Don't do it today, Gatsby answered. He turned to me apologetically. You know, sport. I've never used that pool all summer. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is where we're going to end for the night. Okay, you guys, I'll be back on Wednesday. I love you very much. And um, yeah, we're doing it. We're finishing a book together. Bye.